So as I said, um, we're starting a five-week series. And it's one that I've honestly been looking forward to for over a year, this series on the resurrection of Jesus. So I've been reading a lot of books over um, the last year or so, just thinking on this personally, but also wrestling with particular passages just throughout the Bible, um, because I just want to know more about this resurrection, all right? So um, here's what we usually do with the resurrection. So we usually in the, the week or even the Sunday of Easter, we get really hype about the resurrection, don't we? It's like we, we gather as a church, we put on all the clothes, we get the hair done, we get the kids in their little outfits, and then we come to Easter Sunday and there's usually something a little extra on Easter Sunday, right? Usually you get like donuts or juice or maybe coffee or you have like a place to take a picture of your family. And so we do these like little extra things because we just want to get people excited for it, right? And then you have a lot, all this big, big music that you sing and that you play on Easter Sunday. And then you have the, the pastor that comes out and he usually has different threads on that Sunday too. And so he comes and he's just like super excited, right? Like he's like yelling at you. So come ready for me to yell at you next week is what I'm saying. And so we, we hit the importance of this. It's like, man, the resurrection that really happened. Here's why this is so important. And then what happens the next week? You just like dive back into a new sermon series or you just kind of move back into the series that you're already in and you have all this excitement, you have all this emphasis on the importance of the resurrection, but then it seems like we just never really come back to it again throughout the year, do we? And so what I really have wanted to do is just to spend time more with this truth about the resurrection and its implications for us in our Christian life. If we really believe that it's that important, that we get so excited and we want to declare how important it is for our life, not just our eternity, but like how we live here and now, like we need, it deserves more of our thought and our attention and our wrestling, doesn't it? And like, here's probably the reality for a lot of you too. It's like, I know the resurrection is important, but if I'm being really honest, I don't, I don't know like what the implications are for me day to day. And so here's my, here's my hope for us, all right? So over the next five weeks, I, I want us to spend time in a text that it just extensively covers the resurrection of the Bible. If there's any chapter in the Bible that goes deep, headlong deep into the resurrection, it's 1 Corinthians 15 where we just read. And so what I want to do is I just want to take five weeks to just wrestle with this chapter that gives extensive thought to the resurrection. And as we do this, we are going to wrestle with the importance of it. I mean, that's actually what I want us to do tonight. But then I think it helps us think through the effects on our present and our future. And so if there's a place to start, it is how the resurrection is important. And so that's what we find in the first 11 verses, what we just read um, it really covers just how important the resurrection is. And so here's what I want us to do, all right? So I want us to, according to Paul, like here's what he says, how important the resurrection is to our faith. He says this, and these are my words, not necessarily Paul's words, but I'll help you kind of see where I'm getting it from. The, the importance of the resurrection is so important to our faith, it means salvation is complete or that it's full it means salvation is trustworthy. And then lastly, it means salvation is for everyone. And so I, we're going to kind of work through these three different movements of the text that we see in verses 1 through 11. I just want to work through those three points. And then instead of just like 
totally saying, hey, here's what you go do with that. Uh, I'm hoping what we work through tonight kind of gets our heart in a certain place as we think about stepping into Easter Sunday next week, all right? So um, I want us to think heavily on the resurrection tonight, and then I want to end a little bit more lightheartedly as you're stepping into Easter Sunday next week, all right? So let's start here. We're going to start with the importance of the resurrection means your salvation is complete. We get this in verses one through two. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you the point, and then I want to read through the part of the passage where we're drawing this from, and then I want to tease it out for us a little bit. So here's what verses one through two say. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, so there's a word and then a sequence that I want us to look at here that helps us wrestle with how our, the resurrection is so important that it means our salvation is complete, all right? The word that I want us to consider here is gospel, all right? Paul uses it in the very first verse. He says, the gospel I preach to you. So you hear us use this word gospel here in this church a lot. You see it throughout the Bible pretty regularly too. And so um, what we need to recognize is that the word gospel is a Roman word that already had meaning and significance before Christianity even entered into the world, all right? So here's essentially what the gospel means. Gospel means news, all right? It means news. It means something has happened in the world. And what is this news? What's the news that has happened? What is the news that Paul is saying has occurred? Well, it's the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. All right, we see this in verses three through four. Here's what it says. For I pass on to you as most important what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. All right, so here's what, if we're trying to condense all that the Bible has to say in a short section. Here's what is basically going on. A spiritual death occurred at the very first sin that happened in the garden, all right? There's a spiritual death that took place in the first man and the first woman when they disobeyed God, they ate of the fruit from the tree, and there was a spiritual death that happened. There was a sever that happened in their relationship with God, and this didn't come into immediate physical death, but it trended that way, didn't it? Adam and Eve aren't here we can stand before each other and say we actually don't know anybody else from the very beginning of time that still exists here and now. So we know that physical death did follow, but first spiritual death occurred. And so what happens is that from the very beginning of time, God gives this promise, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to save you. I'm going to deal with this sin problem, this death problem that you have, and that's exactly what happens. God came to earth, and what does he do? He deals with Satan, sin, and death. And how does he do that? He does it through his one and only son. Jesus lives perfectly, fully man, fully God. He dies on a cross completely, full death. He's buried in a grave, and then three days later, the, the grave is empty. Jesus is alive. Jesus is raised, raised victoriously over Satan, sin, 
in, <clears throat> in death. And so this is what Paul is saying. Look, I came and I brought this news to you. That this Jesus who lived perfectly, died completely, rose victoriously, I have brought this message to you. I brought you this gospel. I preached it to you. But here's where he, he really gets into the nitty gritty. He gets into a sequence here. And what he ends up doing is he unpacks this further. And he says, look, this isn't just news that it's like, hey, here's what's happened in this world. It has implications on your life. And you see this in the sequence that follows from at the end of verse 1 through verse 2. Here's what he says. The gospel I preached to you, and here's the sequence, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. So essentially, here's what Paul is saying. Look, there is a completeness, and there is a fullness to your salvation because Jesus is alive. That's what's taking place here. He's saying it's affected your past, it's affecting your present, and it has changed your future. That's what Paul is saying here, all right? So here's, here's how an old English bishop put it, all right? So this old English bishop was walking down a street in London, and as he was walking down the street, there was just a street evangelist that approached him, and this street evangelist asked this old bishop, sir, have you been saved? And so this old bishop at the question that he receives from the street evangelist stops and he gives some reflection and then he graciously responds in this way. Yes, I have been saved. I am being saved and I shall be saved. So here's what the bishop is saying and here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I have been changed. This resurrection of Jesus, I've heard this. He has come and he's interrupted my life. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, because Jesus is alive, I've met him through the scriptures. I've heard of him through people that have come and given witness to the account of what Jesus has done in this world. And I have experienced personal resurrection. Here's where that kind of comes from. Ephesians chapter two, Paul elsewhere says this. He puts the gospel like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is like six feet under, three days later. Like there's no coming back from this apart from a miracle that happens in your life. But then you get to verses four and five and he says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ, even though we are dead in trespasses. That's resurrection. That's resurrection. That's personal, spiritual resurrection that comes when there is faith, soul faith in the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. Your sin left you dead. But because of God's divine intervention in your life, you experience resurrected life here and now. That's your past. Like if you believed in Jesus, resurrected faith, you get to experience that life. But look, now you also live differently. That's what this bishop was saying. I am being saved. You have this freedom that is given to you that you get to experience here and now. It's not just a future freedom. It's a present freedom. What Paul and what the bishop is trying to say is, look, you have been freed from sin. Before Jesus in your life came and divinely interrupted your life, brought about personal resurrection, you were a slave to sin. Everything in your life 
was geared towards this idea of sin. You weren't as evil as you could be, but everything in your life, everything that you were enslaved to was this life of sin, life apart from God. But because God has divinely interrupted your life through this Jesus that is not dead in a grave, but he's alive and seated by the right hand of God, you get to experience that resurrected life now. Freedom. Here's what that means. You've been freed to obey. This is the best. This is what God created you to, this is the life that God created you for, is to live with God under the rule of God. And so because Jesus is alive, because he's divinely interrupted your life, it's not just something that you get to experience in the future. And right now it's like, well, what do we do? No, you get to live the resurrected life here. But then also it's future. And here's what this means. My future has promise. My future has promise. Look, here's the hope for every person that calls on the name of Jesus. It's not that we just are saved from sin here and then we die and then we just go off into the ether. No, Jesus is coming back. He's alive. This kingdom that he has instilled in this world here and now is going to come in full when he comes back again. This means that there's going to be a new world. Like, Everything receives and experiences a resurrection. There's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin. Your body will be physically raised from the grave and you will have no longer a broken body, but a perfect body that allows you to dwell with God forever. So this means, look, a lot of people, it's like, man, it's so bleak. Man, we, we want to do everything that we can to invest in humanity here and now. We want to see people flourish. We're going to give to the poor. We're going to do all this stuff for humanity. But then a lot of what the worldview that our world has is that we die and then nothing happens. That's not our hope. Our hope is not that we just are striving to make things better here and now, but then we just pass away and then everything's gone. No, we step in, we live the resurrected life. We want to see the kingdom of God advanced here and now, but we also have a better hope, which is a future that is so bright that God is going to live here with us physically in a brand new place, like fully resurrected. That's what all this means. Like, look, this is such great hope. If there's a way that you could try to condense exactly what the Christian faith is, it's a resurrection faith. That there is a resurrection of the living God who actually, this historic event that happened in human history that affects your life here and now, that you experience personal spiritual resurrection now, that we get to live into this resurrected life here in the present, but that there's going to be a completion that happens when Jesus comes back. This is huge. This shows the fullness and the completeness of your faith, that he saves you. You get to live in it now, that it's going to be completed when he comes back again. It is so robust what God is doing through the work of Jesus being resurrected from the grave that it is so hard for us to encompass it all because it, it, it encompasses all of life. It's holistic. That's what I mean by complete or full. It encompasses everything. And we get that here. Now, if I'm anticipating a pushback on this, um, I would expect this from those that might be skeptics or cynics. Yeah, okay, so the, the resurrection is important to the Christian faith, but like, come on, like, did it really happen? 
Like, isn't this just legend or myth? You know what I'm saying? Like, can we really prove that Jesus was actually a person that died and rose again from the grave? Like, how, how do we really know this? Well, Paul actually addresses this in verses 3 through 8. This is why, like, the importance of the resurrection is so clear for us. And what we see here is that the gospel is trustworthy. The gospel is trustworthy. Here's what verses 3 through 8 say. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, but also to you and me. Verse 3. For I passed on to you as important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And look at this. And that he appeared to Cephas, then, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as the one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So it's like Paul is anticipating these questions of cynicism and doubt and skepticism, isn't it? Paul is basically saying, look, the, res- the resurrection of Jesus is legit, all right? So consider like these witnesses with me. Let's just kind of unpack that a little bit so we can actually wrestle with it a little bit. So he says, he starts with Peter. He says, the apostle Peter saw Jesus after the resurrection. So we know if you look at the gospel accounts, this lines up, right? So G- Peter, at, on that Sunday morning when Jesus is risen from the grave, G- Peter meets Jesus face to face. Then you see the 12. This is likely referencing the original crew, right? The throwback crew, minus Judas and Thomas, because if you look at the gospel accounts, we see that those two were not there. But this is probably a reference to that original crew that Jesus came and made an appearance to them. Then it says the 500. Now, we don't know exactly what this particular event was could possibly be Jesus' ascension in Matthew 28, Acts 1. Seems like that might be uh, a little bit earlier. So you get this account. And what makes this so crystal clear is that Paul says, look, some of the, most of these people are still alive. Like you can go, you can go like actually talk to them. They touched Jesus' side where he was pierced. You can, they placed fingers in the holes in his hands. Like they sat down and ate meals with Jesus. They saw him walk through walls, like just crazy stuff that happened. These people, they can give you personal accounts that they had with Jesus before he was ascended. Then you have James, Jesus' brother. Like if there's any reason to show that the resurrection really happened, it is that his brother believed it, right? My brother would, ne- I, my brother loves me. He would never worship me as God. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But James, his, Jesus' brother is like, no, this guy's legit. My brother's legit. He's fully God, fully man. He was dead and now he's alive. He's the leader of the church. He's leading a, a large, massive church in this belief set. Then you have the apostles. Could be in reference to multiple occurrences that happened before Jesus' ascension. And then Paul ends with himself, just that he's an untimely apostle. After Jesus is ascended, God comes and divinely interrupts his life on that road to Damascus. And because He has this personal encounter. He's now considered an apostle. Now, here's why this is all trustworthy, all right? Here's why this is trustworthy. First, most of these verses were a creed, all right? Most of these verses were something that was being uh, sourced around to other churches and other people at this time within three to five years of Jesus' ascension, that's not long enough for there, this to be a legend or for somebody to make up a story. Like this is already circulating around the church. This is something that they put in a very distinctive 
uh, set rhythm. A, they had verbiage that they put this in in very important personal reasons because they wanted people to receive this trustworthy account. And then Paul is literally placing this before the Corinthian church as an invitation. Like, hey, if you're doubting this stuff about the resurrection, then go have a conversation with them. I'll give you the list of names. I'll give you their address. They'll love to have a meal. Sit down, talk about it with you. You can wrestle all this stuff with them. It's a creed that it's being circulated around at this point in time. And man, these are people that you can go sit down with and hear all this personal account. But the second would be the disciples' devotion, all right? So we get the hindsight, or we get to look back in the 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 historical accounts of what happened with all these witnesses of what really happened. And so the disciples, they're not just putting their credibility on the line, but they also put their lives on the line because many of them, they go and die excruciating deaths. I mean, we have so many accounts of what these witnesses went through by believing in this resurrection of account to where they're willing to go lay their life down in very, very gruesome ways. So just look at it, like, just consider a couple that are in the list that Paul gives us. So you have Peter, it's reported that he and his wife were both killed. His wife is, is crucified before him. He has to watch. And then Peter doesn't consider himself worthy to be crucified as Jesus was himself. And so he's crucified upside down, excruciating death. Then you have the 12, all but John are executed and the apostle John was tried to be boiled alive. Then you have James, Jesus' brother, he's stoned to death by the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And then you have Paul himself who's later beheaded after going through countless stories of persecution, of standing up for the belief of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Blaise Pascal, I think, kind of puts it, uh, has a synopsis of all of this that I think just puts it perfectly. He says, I believe those witnesses that get their, thro their throats cut. That's exactly what happens with these witnesses. And the last one is the historical reliability. So the evidence of Christ's resurrection has been studied and refuted endlessly. From the very beginning of the church until now, there have been so many people that have gone back to study and tried to refute this idea of Jesus' resurrection. Here's just a couple. So you have like Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. After looking into all of this, he believed that it was legit. You have Suetonius. He was a Roman historian who also gives account of the resurrection of Jesus. And then you also have Pliny the Younger. He was a governor in the Roman government who also gives account to the resurrection of Jesus and the work that's happening in the church during his point in time. And so look, the same conclusion is constantly coming back to the resurrection really happened. It really happened. Here's what, like, here's a couple of quotes that um, I just couldn't get away from this week. So one of them is from a lawyer. He actually has the Guinness Book of World Records most won uh, trials in his career. And then you also have a scholar, Thomas Arnold from Oxford. Here's what both of them say, all right? So Sir Lionel Luck, who, what a name. Um, this is, he's the, uh, he's the lawyer. Here's what he says. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Then you have 
the scholar who says this, thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up an important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself, wrestling with doubt himself. I've been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better proved by fuller evidence than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. And look, this is just scratching the surface. We could take weeks and build out an entire apologetic course that's working through all the evidence and arguments and philosophies that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. But the point is this, it's true. It's trustworthy. And so look, because the gospel, because the resurrection happened, it makes your salvation complete. There's a fullness, there's a robustness, there's a wholeness to it. It also can be trusted because it actually happened. It's been proven time and time again that these events occurred in human history. But look, there's more, okay? So not only is this important to our salvation, not only is it trustworthy, there could be pushback that could happen here of like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is important. All right, I see that it actually did happen in human history. But look, like, God probably just did this for a, like a certain people. He just probably did it for people that were the goody two-shoes that, you know, mostly did life well or that came from the right family or the right people. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, if it, there has to be a hang-up to this, essentially, is what we try to look for in everything, isn't it? Like, it's like we need proof. We need further proof. And that's exactly what we see in the very final pieces of 9 verse 11 here in this passage. So here's what Paul does. He lays out for us that the gospel is for everyone. The resurrection of Jesus, that he is alive, is good news for everyone. Verse 9, for I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You can just feel the turmoil in Paul's soul as he's writing here, can't you? Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. We see here and elsewhere, I want to draw us to another passage here in a second, that the hope of the resurrection is for everyone. It's for everybody. So look, it, the resurrection is so powerful that it overcomes the greatest obstacles that we could possibly try to hang up the resurrection and its effect on our life. Here's one, all right? The first one is what you've done, all right? The resurrection is so powerful that it does not matter how wicked or evil of sin you've done in this life. The resurrection power is so strong that it overcomes any sin that you've done in this life. So as a pastor, you get to hear a lot <laughs> um, when you go and you share about Jesus or you invite people to the church. Here's one of the lines that you hear a lot. If I walked into a church, it would collapse on me because I've done something too drastic, too bad. My life has not been good enough. And so look, 
Paul's our case in point that that can't be true. (laughs) Paul declares himself the least of the apostles. He's unworthy of the title. And here's why. Because I persecuted the church of God. Literally, Paul's entire goal in life was to wipe the name of Jesus off the face of the earth. So here's what he did. He would go seek people out. He would get orders from the Jerusalem Jewish leaders, and he would go to these places where he had an inkling that there was people that believed in Jesus. He would then go and find these people, extract them out of their homes, throw them into jail, and then he advocated for their death, all because he wanted to wipe the name of Jesus off the face of the earth. So look, if God had a problem with anyone, it would be Paul, right? This guy's literally trying to remove my name from every person's mouth on the face of the earth. Yet the resurrected Jesus met this Paul on the road to Damascus and he saved him. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You and me. He's come to save the worst of the worst. And that's exactly what Paul says I am. I am the worst of all of them. Because I'm the one that tried to get rid of this Jesus who is resurrected from the grave, seated at the right hand of God, who comes and intervenes in your life and gives you right relationship with God. I was trying to rid this world of him, but he came down and he saved me. So the... The result here should be for all of us, there is nothing that we have done in our life that removes us from the resurrection power of Jesus in saving you. Nothing. You, all that the Bible asks for you to do is to put your worst foot forward. Not to clean up your life before you come to Jesus, but to embrace that you're a sinner. That I am that wicked person. That I am the person that has wronged God. And then I put that foot forward. I don't have to try to go clean my life up and try to do all these things to make my, right, my relationship with God right. I fully trust in what Jesus has done for me. That's it. It's embracing that I am wicked and that I am a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior and that Savior is Jesus. But then the hope of this message of the resurrection, it's not only so powerful that it overcomes anything that you've ever done, it also overcomes any place or family that you've come from, it does not matter your ethnicity is what I'm trying to say. This gospel is for everyone, all right? In Paul's time, the reality of Christ's death and resurrection overcame any family or any tribe that you came from, all right? So at this point in time, it was God's people, the Israelites, and then everybody else, and that everybody else was called Gentiles, And after Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where Paul gives us one of the most explicit declarations of the gospel and the personal resurrection that happens in our life, he works out the implications of that and how it's to be used for all people. And here's what we get in verses 11 through 13. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. And then skip down. At that time you were without Christ excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But here's verse 13 in our hope. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace 
who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Look, what Paul is saying is that this gospel, this resurrection hope, is for any person in the world. It's not just for the Israelites. And in our struggle here in American history, it's not just white man's religion. It is for every tribe, nation, and tongue. We get this picture in Revelation chapter 7 after Jesus has commanded his disciples to take the news of his life, death, and resurrection to the ends of the earth. The picture that we get of this end church when Jesus comes back again is a multi-ethnic church. Revelation 7 says it's a vast multitude that is worshiping Jesus as Lord and Savior from every nation, tribe, people and language they cry out salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne into the lamb so this good news is for everyone no matter what you've done or where you've come from the good news of Jesus the hope of the resurrection is for you all right so look, I understand that a lot of what we've done is kind of like heady, heavy, like mind-oriented things of what we're looking at in terms of the importance of the resurrection. Of the resurrection. And if, if I were to try to like summarize sometimes what it feels like as a preacher, it sort of feels like I'm a tourist guide, all right? So it feels like I'm trying to take you through the scriptures and I'm trying to point stuff out to you. And it's like, hey, look at this. Look at this thing that happened. And then like, do you, do you believe it? Like, do you believe this happened do you believe God's word that uh, what he promised to you? Like, hey, here's these things. I want to kind of continue to come and put them before you. But by the way, like, hey, does this have an effect on your life? Right? Like, I just want to expose you to it. I want to bring it before you. Like, do you get it? Are we rest? Like, you, is it jiving? Is it connecting with your heart? But also a tourist guide is trying to take you to a destination, isn't he? Or she. Right? Um, so there's destinations, all right? So look, if I'm trying to bring us to a destination, here's where I want us to come. Obviously, I want you to see the importance of the resurrection, right? Like I want you to see that there is good news that Jesus is alive. Like I want you to be like, dang, the resurrection's profound. Like it encompasses everything. Like Jesus reaches back into my life, this resurrection that happened over 2,000 years ago, it affects my life. I receive personal resurrection right now. Like I can actually change. God changes me. He, he speaks into my life. He does something that I can never do for myself. There's personal resurrection. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I want you to be like, man, the resurrection is legit. Like I can doubt my doubts, as Tim Keller says. That when there are moments that doubt creeps into my mind, that Jesus, is he real? was he real? Is he really alive? Is he really seated at the right hand of God? Because of everything that we see in this passage, we can speak truth to ourselves that I can doubt my doubts. Yes, he, he's alive. It's really happened. There's been so many people that have tried to disprove this thing, and as they were trying to disprove it, they came to believe themselves. It's because it's trustworthy. I can doubt my doubts. Man, Wow, the resurrection is, for, is so inclusive. It's for every person. Like, man, I need to be going and sharing this hope with everybody, right? Like, this is for everyone. God somehow, for some reason, in his grace, chose me 
And because he has been so kind and gracious towards me, I've been made his hand and feet. I get to be the witness of this thing that has happened in my life. I have to go tell other people about it. Like, these are all, like, things where I want us to land, the importance of the resurrection. But, man, like, if I could land on any place for us as we're looking forward to next Sunday is I want us to land in a place that our hearts, our affections are stirred to where we are ready to celebrate. That's where I want that. The reason we started a week early in a resurrection series before Easter comes is because I wanted our hearts to be prepared. I wanted us to come and wrestle with like this, the resurrection. Yes, it's really important. And here's those implications for our life. But man, I want to come next week and I just want to rejoice. Like I want us to experience the joy that comes from this resurrection. I have life. Like, Jesus is alive, and that affects my life. I was dead, I'm alive, and man, I want to come with those who call in the name of Jesus and rejoice that this thing that happened in human history, God is still alive, and he's still working today. That's what I want. Like, I come and, re- like, over the course of this next week, here's what I want you to do. It can be going to the gospel accounts. It can be in 1 Corinthians 15. I just want you to marinate in the resurrection of Jesus, And as you've thought and as we've wrestled on the importance of this resurrection, man, let it work on your heart to when you come next week, you're ready to sing. When you come next week, you are thirsting and salivating to sit and hear more about this resurrection. That you are coming ready for the fellowship that comes with those sons and daughters of God who also stand with you and say, I have been saved too. Next week, we're celebrating a baptism where someone is literally standing before us and saying the same thing that God has done in your life, he's done in my life too. And we get to hear his resurrection story. And then I want us to stand up and I want us to hoot and I want us to holler and I want us to sing and I want us to rejoice because God is still resurrecting people here today. You with me? So look, here's what, like, man, just come next week. Like, let's be ready to celebrate. So do it. Like, go invite people. It's for everybody. We want everybody to be there. We want them to hear the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, but then come with a ready heart to sing and worship and rejoice this thing that God has done in human history that literally has changed everything. Let's come ready. Let's enjoy because Jesus, friends, he's alive. Let's pray.